So if I ask you that question, what is God like, what would you come up with? There, there are some good ideas <clears throat> and some screwy ideas in that video. Don't, don't accept that as part of the teaching from the Word today. God, God may very well be like a father, and in times he's like a mother. I, I'm not so sure about the whole itch uh, concept of what God is like. Um, there's, there's a couple of things, though, that I want to point out about, about that whole idea. When we ask the question, what is God like, um, there's something that that video all kinds of ha has in common, and that is that we like a God who's approachable. That is a God that is um, a God that's n a nice image. You know, the, the, even the lion was dumbed down to a kitty in that, in that little video. Um, nobody said, when they asked the question, what's God like? Nobody said, he's like a raging fire, white hot, that's destroying everything in its path. Nobody said, he's like a great flood that washes a house entirely off its foundation. Or, or he's a stumbling stone that smashes those to pieces that he falls upon. Or he's, or he's like a warrior on a horse with his sword dripping in blood from the adversaries that he has slain. Nobody said that about God. We tend to not think about those images of God. It's like, remember um, back in the 90s, Sears came out with an advertising campaign that was called the softer side of Sears to convince people they weren't all just hardware, right? Um, we like the softer side of God. We like the God who hugs us. Grandpa God. Um, and I think that comes out in that video if you think about those images collectively. The other thing that comes out in those, in those, uh, from watching that video is simply this reality. We don't get to decide what God is like. God is not who he is because we said he's like that. We, we discover what God is like when we look at his word and when we look at his word in passages like we're going to look at today in Deuteronomy 5 um, they surprise us they may very well shock us because what, I, what I'm going to contend from uh, the word today is that we should fear God and I'm, I'm going to advance three ideas through this one we should fear God because it's right for us to fear God we should fear God because it's good for us to fear God. And lastly, it is for us in our day as followers of Jesus Christ, wrapped in the love of God. It is still for us to fear God. So if you'll open your Bible to the back end of Deuteronomy chapter 5, um, that's what we'll be looking at and thinking about together today as we walk through this passage. And it'd be good for us to pray as we start, All right? Let's do that. God, help us not to cling to the God of our imagination today. Give us eyes to see, even from these verses we'll look at together today in Deuteronomy, um, to see you as you are and to worship you rightly and to experience all it is that in your goodness you bring to us. So um, help us, God. May your spirit work in every one of us as we hear your word. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, where we are in Deuteronomy, people are on the edge of the promised land, about to enter. And so Moses is giving them back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back sermons to get them ready. 
we are uh, at the beginning part of the second sermon, which is the lion's share of the book. And he's still reviewing for them their history. And so today he's going to recount for them what it was like for them back on Mount Sinai 40 years earlier when they got the Ten Commandments from God. Starting in verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me, Moses says. So he is taking them back to that experience where they got the Ten Commandments on that mountain from God. And he says, uh, it's interesting, he says he gave them those words and no more. And he wrote those words for them on tablets of stone. And you get a sense for the enduring, persevering centrality of these Ten Commands for God's people. And we talked at length about that last week. Um, but let's drop back into when this actually happened. Moses is retelling it now for a new generation. Drop back with me to Exodus 19. Let's look at the description of what it was like to encounter God on that mountain. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Brought the people out of the camp there and they, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through um, to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And you, you have the sense, I hope, that this was a terrifying scene for God's people. And, and that's replayed, recounted in our passage in the next couple of verses of chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Moses says, as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of that darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, Moses says all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? It's interesting. Um, they really believed that simply by hearing any more of God's voice, they'd die on the spot. Um, it was that kind of, 
a terrifying experience just to be near the mountain where God was manifesting his presence there. Now, most of us are familiar with the idea that mortals can't see God and live. It comes, again, from the book of Exodus, where Moses says, Please show me your glory, Lord. And the Lord said, I'll make my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now, in our passage, expanding on that, the people believe that just the audio of an encounter with God could kill them. They don't, they don't want to face God. They don't want to hear anymore directly. I don't know if you've ever considered that. That an unmediated encounter with just God's voice perhaps could take your life. Um, so what they do is they send their leaders to Moses. And they ask Moses, their leaders do on their behalf, um, to be their mediator. Verse 26, they say, Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear, Moses, all the Lord our God will say and speak to us that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. So they set Moses up to be their mediator. They say, Moses, we're going to die if we have to endure God's presence. So you go and hear from them. So they meet, they ask Moses to be their mediator. But most significantly, I hope you'll see what the intent is of the people having faced God and faced the reality of who he is. They say, Moses, you tell us all the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and we will do it. Okay? It's not idle curiosity about the words of God. It is the words of God so that we can live them out and be a people obedient to our God. Their fear of God is fuel for their obedience to God. And, and today I'm going to posit that if you have an obedience problem, it's entirely possible that you have a fear problem. Okay. Look, at, look at the next verse. It changes perspective now. And Moses says that the Lord hears the people's words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, so he's now, the people have suggested Moses go be their mediator because out of their fear of the Lord. And the Lord is now responding to that idea. And the Lord says, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Okay? God is affirming everything they said. So he's affirming at least three things. He's affirming, one, they really would die if they unmediated ascended that mountain to where God was. God says they're right in that. It's not paranoia. They're right to have that fear. Secondly, it's a good idea to have Moses mediate. God is commending that. It's a good idea. And the broader principle here is you don't want to go mano y mano with God. You don't want to face God on your own without a mediator. And we'll, we'll come back to that, I hope. But most importantly, 
God is saying, it's good for them to fear me and obey me. God is affirming that. It's good. It's good. God delights in it. And as we're going to see, he longs for it. Verse 29. Oh, God says that they had such a mind as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments. Those ideas are inseparable. That it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God wants to be feared. It is right for God to be feared. And it is for our good that we would fear him. Um, It's interesting, amidst all of this uh, kind of the harder side of God's character, there is his kindness. There There are elements of that softer side beautifully coexisting as well here. In this sobering text, with life and death hanging in the air over God's people. God's concern for his people to bless us. He says that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. This is, this is for our good that we would fear our God. And if you look through the scriptures, if you just did a survey of what the Bible says about fearing God, It is full of amazing treasures that it brings to us. Here, it's put generally. You fear God and the resultant obedience will cause it to go well with us and our descendants forever. Um, If you want to bless your kids and your grandkids, then model for them what it means to fear the Lord. It It is a generational blessing that comes to them through you. But in Psalm 111, we see that the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the foundation for all wisdom. Proverbs, same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, if, you were to, if we had time this morning and I were to run throughout the scriptures, these are the things we would find, the good things that come to God's people when we fear him rightly. It frees us from the fear of man. It delights God. He loves it. It blesses children, which we've just seen. It keeps us from sin as it fuels obedience. It presses us to treat others well. It prospers us as it brings about God's blessing on our lives. It encourages righteousness and brings honor to us. It fuels worship. It helps us hear God better. It yields wisdom. It keeps us faithful. It accesses the riches of God. It strengthens and grows the church in the book of Acts. And it encourages evangelism. The fear of God and the obedience that flows out of it is for our good in so many ways. And so God says, Oh, that we had such a mind as this always. To fear Him. Keep all His commandments that it might go well with us and our descendants forever. This, this, as we're seeing, is non-negotiable stuff for the people of God to walk in God's ways and experience His blessing. Verse 30, 
God says to Moses, go and say to the people, return to your tents. But you, Moses, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land I am giving them to possess. So Moses has been put forward by the people to be a mediator, right? Now God is affirming that, and God is putting Moses in the place of being a mediator. This is a clue to the people that they should listen to Moses, okay? They want him to mediate. God wants him to mediate. Listen to what he says. Um, but that, that didn't happen. As it, as it unfolded, they left Mount Sinai. They wandered around in that desert. You remember that? The book of Numbers tells that story. And in number 16, this is the kind of thing we find in terms of the way that people ended up treating Moses. Korah took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, You've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Because you ask me to? And because God told me to, that's the answer. They should be remembering. Okay. Moses, extraordinary position. So Moses is, okay, retelling this story to the new generation that's about to enter the land, right? Because he doesn't want them to commit the error of the previous generation and disregard the words he's bringing them from God. Um, so that they will obey and not question the law of God that's about to unfold to them, that just has been unfolded in Ten Commandments. It's about to unfold in all the laws of the coming chapters. This theme continues in the remainder of our chapter and passage today. Verse 32, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Okay. Be careful. Do what the Lord commanded you. Don't turn aside. Walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you. It's this relentless call upon the people to obey God. Three times in just these two verses. Obey. Don't turn aside. Walk in the way. And the reason is so that they will be richly blessed by God. There's that phrase, that it may go well with you, and you'll live long in the land. Um, and so we have both sides of God happily present next to each other here. Fear me, and I will bless you. Okay. Let's look at the first few verses of chapter 6 today as we close. Um, this is the commandment the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, Moses says, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. So Moses is relaying to them the laws of God, so that they will obey. Three more times he says it. They're to be done. They're to be kept. They're to, 
you to do them all. Six times now in about five verses, he says, make sure you do what I'm about to teach you. And it is again a fruit of the fear of the Lord. Um, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments. So the word creates fear which yields obedience is the general interrelation between these things. And that brings the promise of God's blessing on his people. And, and you see it time and time again. Three times in this short section, uh, back in um, verse 29, it says, keep all my commandments that it may go well with them. Verse 33, um, walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may go well with you. Chapter 6, verse 3, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And in, in this text, uh, and throughout the scriptures, the fear of God functions in our life very similarly to the way the love of God functions. Both of them yield obedience in our lives. If we love God, we will obey Him, Jesus taught us. Moses is teaching us, if we fear God, we will obey. And Jerry Bridges has tried to help us think about this through um, a physics lesson. I'm going to take some of you way back. This is like middle school for some of you. Okay. Um, and he talks about there are two different kinds of opposing forces, generally. Centrifugal and centripetal. Remember, remember that? Just kind of foggy back there a long time ago. Um, centrifugal force pulls away from the center. Centripetal force pulls, pushes, pulls towards the center. So he says if you take a ball on a string and you're swinging it around, it's, what, it's both of those opposing forces that hold that ball in, in motion. He says these two opposing forces can help us understand something of the fear of God. The centrifugal force represents the attributes of God such as his holiness and sovereignty that cause us to bow in awe and self-abasement before him. They hold us reverently distant from the one who, by the simple power of his word, created the universe out of nothing. The centripetal force represents the love of God. It surrounds us with grace and mercy and draws us with cords of love into the Father's warm embrace. To exercise a proper fear of God, he says, we must understand and respond to both of these forces. If you want things to go well with you, Moses says repeatedly, Obey, fear the Lord, and obey his commands. It is for our good. It is right for us, it is good for us, and it is for us. How are you at fearing God? How would you, you just think about that. When you are tempted, does this side of God's character give you pause? 
does the idea of standing before him one day and giving account for your words and your actions and even your thoughts make you flee temptation? Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word, every careless word that they speak. Paul said, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The secrets that no one else knows. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Does the fear of God, does the, does the reality of that pending accountability to God affect you, deter you? I, I am not, I'm not dragging up some old, irrelevant Old Testament doctrine. Jesus would use this language. He'd say, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I'll, I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has, has authority to t- cast into hell. Yes, Jesus says, I tell you, fear him. Um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, commends the fear of the Lord to us. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, commends the fear of the Lord to us. John The guy who said perfect love casts out fear in his revelation presents the fear of the Lord positively in chapter 14. What what do we mean? Perhaps it would be good to ask that question. What do we mean when we say fear the Lord? And one of the most helpful presentations of this is by Ed Welch in his book called When People Are Big and God is Small which the title alone is worth the price of the book. But he has a couple of great chapters in there on the fear of the Lord, and it, he draws a picture. It, it looks like this. On, when you talk about the fear of the Lord, it's a big, broad concept in the Bible. And on one end is what he calls terror fear. And when we have terror fear, when we dread God and we are trembling in His presence, we hide from God. And we know only of God's holy justice. But open to believers in Jesus Christ and open only to believers in Jesus Christ is a whole nother kind of fear. He calls worship fear. Where we move from terror, dread, and trembling towards astonishment and awe and reverence and devotion and trust and worship. And so we seek God, worship fear, pulls us towards God and we submit to him and we know of God's holy justice still but we also know of his great love for us now your obedience drives you towards worship fear your disobedience produces terror fear so it's kind of a sliding scale that we experience based on our obedience and our disobedience. Um, Psalm 86 gives us another window in what it means for us to fear the Lord rightly. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I'll walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. That in an undivided heart, an absolute 
top priority devotion to God where he is the he is our ultimate allegiance we revere him above all others he is the shaping influence in our life to disobey him strikes fear in our hearts that's that's what it means to fear the Lord and we should fear him you know even in the New Testament there were people who were killed for lying about a real estate transaction Acts chapter 5, look it up. There are people who died for badly taking the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. They were discriminating against one another. They were greedy and selfish with what was going on. And it cost them their lives. To obey Him brings peace and joy because we care more about what He thinks than any other being on the planet. We have an undivided heart. And that's what lies behind what Ed Welch calls worship fear. 1 John 4.18 confuses us because it says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And um, just two things that can help us, I think, see that these are not necessarily mutually exclusive Ideas, the fear that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 5 and the fear of 1 John. In 1 John, a very specific fear is in view. If you read the prior verses, he's talking about the fear of condemnation on Judgment Day. And um, love frees us from that fear, that terror fear. On the other hand, he does say there that Whoever fears has not been perfected in love, and it's true. None of us are perfected in love at this point in our journey, and so we are growing in that freedom from fear. Um, But the Scriptures are clear, though. We need to fear God. It's right to fear God. It's good for us to fear God. And fear is what fuels, alongside love, our obedience. So think back with me through those ten words we saw last week, the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me and no idols. Don't misuse God's name. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, And don't covet that which is your neighbor's. Are you in full, glad obedience to those commands? Are there any areas of disobedience in your life where those commandments um, press against you and call you to live differently? See, if you have an obedience problem, then you likely have a problem in one of two areas, maybe both, and that's Love and fear because they protect us from disobedience and draw us into obedience of God. Do you fear God? When you are tempted, does the character of God give you pause? When you approach gray areas morally where you're not sure if God would be pleased, do you just run on ahead? Are you a it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission kind of person with God? Or does God, his great character, 
give you pause. How do you feed the fear of the Lord? Well, God's word um, produces it in us. Psalm 119, he says, rulers persecute with me without cause. That's scary. But scarier still, he says, my heart trembles at your word. That's a greater fear. That the word of God produces fear in us. If we want to know God rightly and fear him rightly, then we have to know him in his word. And there are a number of character traits that produce that in us. If you meditate on his power, if you meditate on his judgment, if you meditate on his anger, those cause us to revere and fear him. But surprisingly enough, other things do as well. Things maybe we'd say are on the softer side of God. In the back end of Second Chronicles 6, um, God's forgiveness causes people to fear him. When he answers people's prayers... It causes people to forgive him in Jeremiah, or to fear him in in Jeremiah um, chapters three and four. I believe it is his goodness inspires fear in people. So meditating on who God is and shows Himself to be in the Bible will cause us to rightly fear Him. Praying Psalm eighty six eleven will help you fear God. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Pray that prayer, and God will honor it. Um, Let me close with one helpful illustration. I hope it will be helpful for you. It was for me as we approach the Lord's table. John Piper says, When my oldest son, Karsten, was about eight, we visited a man who owned a huge dog. When we opened the door, the dog looked at my son almost eye to eye, which is a fearful prospect for a little boy. But we were assured the dog was harmless and really liked children, and after a while, we sent Karsten to the car to get something, and as he ran across the yard, the dog gave a deep growl and loped up behind him. And the owner leaned out the door and called to Karsten, you'd better just walk. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. And then Piper says this, he says, a huge dog that loves children but doesn't like people to run away from him is what God is like. If we will trust him and enjoy him and throw our arms around his strong neck, he'll be everything we ever hoped for in a friend. But if we decide that there are other things we want more than him and turn to run away, then he'll get very angry. Fearing God, he says, means fearing the terrible prospect of running away from the merciful, all-providing, all-satisfying reign of King Jesus. Will you bow with me? And let's prepare our hearts to approach the Lord's table. First of all, Lord, we know that to approach this table is to cast down our sins and seek grace and mercy from our great mediator, Jesus. Greater than Moses. And so this morning, it's, it's about our disobedience. And some of us are embracing things that could only be described as adulterous. 
And some of us, based on what Jesus says about anger, we're murderers. And still others we covet. And we have little idols that matter more to us than you do. And so we run to them. And we risk your, your displeasure in that pursuit. And honestly, God, many of us, I'm sure, don't fear you. You're our buddy. You love us and are kind and forgiving. Why would we fear you? And while there's truth in those, Lord, we have forgotten all that you are. Your justice and your love. And so, Lord, we confess that we have been too cavalier about who you are. Too unthinking about what it means to double-cross a holy, holy, holy God. Forgive us. And now we rejoice in the privilege of access to you through our great mediator, Jesus the Christ, who invites us to his table. We are thankful for that. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.